This episode of Irish Mythology Podcast is sponsored by McCaffrey Crafts, specialising in authentic walking sticks and shillelaghs handcrafted in County Kerry from Blackthorn that grows out of Irish soil. Find them online at McCaffreyCrafts.com. That's M-C-C-A-F-F-R-E-Y-C-R-A-F-T-S dot com. Hello and welcome back to the Irish Mythology Podcast, where today we hear that the Formorians are having a really bad day. I'm Steffi Nihirni. And we get another reminder, as if one was necessary, of why you should never, ever get on the bad side of the Morrigan. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. After the story, we'll talk a bit about herself, her association with death and the battlefield, as well as how the story came about. I suppose this um, episode is long overdue. We had a bit of a delay. We both had the flu and you did something really interesting, didn't you, in the, in the interim period? I did. Well, I also, I had the flu, but I also had um, an allergic reaction, <laughs> which uh, meant I couldn't record because my voice sounded weird. Uh, but I did, I went to the States, our pa- our patrons will know this because I recorded a little video update for them, but I went to the States to perform a pagan hand fasting for a couple that got married in the State Botanical Gardens in Georgia. And it was really lovely. Congratulations to Skylar and Tyler Edmondson. And you didn't just do the hand fasting, you, per- you performed the ceremony. I did. I officiated the whole ceremony. It was really, it was lovely. It was a yeah. really gorgeous thing to be asked to do. Um, I believe uh, Tasha, who um, was the bridesmaid, but was uh, had to complete her bridesmaid duties working from home because she's sick. But I believe that she listens to the podcast. So hello to Tasha, uh, if, if you're tuning in today. And congratulations to the couple again. Um, it was great. I did a really, really lovely time. Yeah, it sounded really like a... Like a good trip and a cool thing to do yeah it was cool it was a really really good experience so uh yeah i don't know let me know (laughs) listeners if you're if you need someone to come and officiate your wedding hit me up (laughs) yeah but uh, i suppose back to the story Um, yeah what people are actually interested in hearing about today's story is the third part of a three-part prologue to the actual battle in the saga of the second battle of maitura and if you're a long-time listener you'll know that we've been telling this saga in serialized form since near the very beginning of our adventure as Irish Mythology Podcast. We are almost at the finish line in that one. After this, we'll have two episodes, one on the battle itself and one on the aftermath of the battle. And then we'll finally be moving on from this saga. But in between, we will have a Halloween sound special for you and um, probably out on the day itself. But today's story, um, Road to Maitura, Episode 3, Wrath of the Morrigan, has a lot in common with Part 1, March of the Femore. It's mostly an original story based on information within the saga, especially information from the part we covered in The Dagda's Club in Love and War. In the episode March of the Femore, we heard how Indek's daughter lived up to her promise to the Dagda, and today we'll finally see the culmination of that and then how the Morrigan fulfills the promise that she made in the same episode. We'll talk more about that later. But now we present Road to Maitura, Episode 3, Wrath of the Morrigan.
The Fomorians are under attack. The ghastly invaders' plans to conquer Ireland have been disrupted by a mysterious spectral force who has rendered their planned route to battle impassable. Hoping to find a new path, King Indek and his champion the Mighty Lord Balor have dispatched thousands of scouts in all directions as they race against time to meet their mortal foe, the Two-A-Day. When the doubtlessly doomed warriors do not return, the marauding army marches into uncharted territory where an even greater threat awaits. The front line of the Fomorian Legion slashes through the forest vegetation, obstructing their path with hooked sides, their obsidian black armour barely visible under the torchlight of the second line. Trees scream in pain as branches are lopped. Animals flee through the forest. Slender, spear-pointed branches spike through the darkness in retaliation impaling hundreds of Fomorian warriors at a time. Each time a warrior falls, one of the torch carriers passes his light back and steps forward, taking his fallen brethren's weapon. This process repeats itself over and over. Their blood and the sap of stabbed trees soaks the earth beneath their feet, or in some cases, hooves, creating a muddy, bloody stream that runs back down the path behind them. It submerges their boots to the ankles, slowing their advance. The soil begins to swallow them as if it were quicksand. Their agonised cries are audible, near the back of the formation where King Indach Mach de Dainan and Alaha Mach Delva, King of the Hebrides, and his son Brez Makalaha and Balor of the Destructive Eye wearily step. We should have sent more scouts, Brez laments. Hold your wished boy, Indach retorts. There's no time for more scouts. The two-a-day gets stronger by the hour. It is of no consequence. My piercing eye is worth 10,000 warriors. I will reduce them to ash. Balor intervenes. Brez looks at his eye. Could you maybe reduce this forest to ash? He inquires. Yes, but we would be in it. Balor replies. Well, that would certainly liven things up. Alaha remarks. And we might be able to see where we are going. Marching in the dark in black armour isn't exactly the brightest of ideas. Indach scowls. Do you have any better ones? He inquires sourly. Alaha doesn't answer. The dawn's early light dilutes the darkness. The Fomorian army's black armour is almost indistinguishable from the shadows that punctuate twilight. The long arms of the forest retreat and become ordinary branches again. The screaming subsides 
the whispering of the trees grows gradually quieter until it cannot be heard at all. Word is passed back through the lines to the Fomorian leadership that the forward battalions have reached the edge of the forest. The news is bittersweet to the ears of Indech. Since they set out from Shkedna, they have lost a ninth of their number and the remainder is bloody and weary. Send word back to set up camp. Make sure it's well clear of the probing arms of this bloody forest, he orders. Brez emits a sigh of relief. At least we're safe from this, whatever it is. Balor's head is covered in scratches. The hostile forest canopy almost had his scalp. The forest is so quiet now that the Fomorian host can hear their own breath. Indeed, Indak answers. It's a little too quiet for my liking. Balor looks at his companions. I'll be able to see their position again when we get out of this, and I'll burn this forest to its roots with my piercing eye. Save it for the battle, Elaha interjects. We're not out of the woods yet. The camp is almost erected by the time Indech, Balor, Brez and Alaha emerge from the forest to a plain surrounded by mountains and hills and covered by clear skies. Indech stands with his hands clasped behind his back and surveys the scene. Good. It will take an hour or so to ascertain our position, but we must be close to... All of a sudden... The light fades. In the size. Maybe longer with this cloud cover. Brez is startled. That's no cloud, he stutters. In the Balor and Allah look up to see a swirling black mist so dense that it covers the sky. It expands and contracts rises, falls, and then it starts emitting a sound. A screech? A cry? A call. Not one, but many, many calls. A cacophony of calls. The mist takes form, no longer gaseous in appearance no longer a single entity but crows thousands of crows scald crows ravens rooks each bird's attention is fixed upon indach's army divilment in their beady eyes get down alaha shouts the army of crows dive bomb the fomorian foe balor who isn't at all adept at ducking, swings his arms furiously, batting away the birds. Abandon camp, Indech shouts, run! Impressive, Allah muses as he runs alongside his king. 
I've never seen an order acted on so swiftly. The Fomorians race through the valley as their weaker soldiers are picked off one by one by large groups of crows working together to force them to the ground and then peck through their armour. None of their comrades stop to help. They cross hills pockmarked by she mounds and stray sods and even more of their number simply vanish. Finally, they reach the ford of the Unshin River. There, Indach exclaims, pointing at a conjuring of sorcerers that are chanting spells on the other side. Wipe them out, all of them. The Fomorian horde, led by Alaha, Brez and Balor, charges at the ford. The sorcerers don't flinch and keep chanting as the crows dive to protect them from the oncoming threat. Indek remains in position behind them, surveying and assessing the work of his army. He is so focused that he doesn't notice that a single crow has also remained behind and is hovering overhead. There is a terrifying screech. Indek looks up and immediately throws up his arms to cover his face. The scald crow gets bigger and bigger as it descends upon him. The impact of the giant corvid throws the Fomorian king to the ground. The bird pecks and pecks at his armour, easily breaking through and lancing his flesh. Blood surges through his cracked breastplate until the flow is so strong that it falls from him altogether. The crow thrusts a claw forward. He feels searing pain as she digs through flesh and organs and grasps a kidney. As the claw withdraws with the prize, the crow transforms, first into mist, the like of which covered the sky not that long ago. Then, she takes the form of a woman. She clasps the kidney in the palm of her hand. At first, her face is indiscernible under the grey hood of her black cloak. But then, you, Indech whimpers, shaking on the ground. The Morrigan smiles, then transforms back into crow form and flies away with Indech's kidney. At the very moment that the tips of Fomorian spears are within thrusting distance of the enemy sorcerers, the chanting stops, the magicians vanish. The crows retreat. Balor, Brez and Alaha look back to see their king writhing in agony on the blood-soaked ground amidst a sea of corpses while the Unshin waters run red at the Ford of Destruction. That was quite dark in the end wasn't it I think dark is probably an understatement I mean the end is the Morgan standing there with Jan Buchel's kidney in her hand um but yeah I suppose look if you get on the wrong side of the Morgan whatever the outcome it's going to be dark yeah <laughs> you know? best not do that um just to be on the safe side I think this is like 
we did have back in episode four, you know, the, the Morrigan and her sisters really kind of putting the fear into the furball. But I think this is probably the most terrifying she's been on the show so far. And I think that, you know, she needs to be terrifying. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, I suppose, yes, like the kidney, it's, it's very, it's, it's not, it's very gore type horror yeah. stuff. I don't know. I feel like I don't, I'm missing a word there. I, I was almost, when, when you were reading that bit, I was almost um, thinking of Jurassic Park, you know, when uh, the dinosaurs, I think they, they have um, a vehicle and one of the, the I, don't, I can't remember if it's a T-Rex or something, is just banging off the vehicle and the oh, yeah. is dented in it. Of course, I get that now that I've seen <laughs> Jurassic Park 30 years after everyone else seen it. I should tell listeners that I actually, up until, when was it? Probably about six months ago. This is totally unrelated to Morgan. This is just a stupid story, stupid anecdote from myself. I had never seen Jurassic Park and I also thought that the film Jurassic Park was about dinosaurs that had somehow survived on Earth up till now and were discovered and that they could speak. <laughs> I have no idea. What happened in my head? I think, did we decide that I had actually, what had happened is I must have like conflated that and some other TV show that did have talking dinosaurs on it. Dinosaurs. In my childhood. Yeah. But anyway, I saw Jurassic Park and it was good. Um, Your man that I really like was in it. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. (laughs) I think that was like how I was convinced to watch it in the end. It was like, oh, Jeff Goldblum is in this. But anyway, uh, what would Jeff Goldblum think about the Morrigan? Can I just ask you a quick question on. on foot of that that I've never thought of before? What language did you did you think the dinosaurs spoke? I didn't give it that much consideration, Mark. <laughs> do you know, like it was this was just something someone said to me one day about something to do with Jurassic Park, and I said, oh, I've never seen it. And then it was our friend Sarah, and then Sarah said to me, "Wait, what do you think Jurassic Park is about?" And that's what I thought, you know, like, I, uh, and it also reminds me of the time that it was discovered that I hadn't seen The Matrix either and had to explain <laughs> what I thought that was about. Anyway, there's, there's a whole other podcast show in, I think, me watching films that, <laughs> that everybody in the world has seen Describing except for me. what you think they're about beforehand. Yeah, and definitely. Yeah. So anyway, look, back to, back to this. Um, wouldn't you love to see a film actually an adaptation of this with Jeff Goldblum in it <laughs> this is this is the one time where, where, where you know the this bit... would Jeff Goldblum play Elaha maybe oh I don't know I don't know although I'd love to see his facial expression as Indek when Demorrigan descends upon him that would be fantastic yeah I don't know who would I have playing the Demorrigan he'd do that thing you know where he holds he puts his finger up to his lips yeah and then goes <laughs> you <laughs> That'd be great. But anyway, look, we're gone way off track here now. No one <laughs> aren't interested in my thoughts on Jurassic Park. Everybody's interested in Jeff Goldblum, though. That is true. That is true. Um, but anyway, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, we know we were saying that. Yeah, the the original this this is an original story based on pieces of information that are in the saga. So if you've been following our serialized retelling, you will remember that in the episode "The Dagda's Club in Love and War." The Morrigan sleeps with the Dagda 
and subsequently promises to cause some problems for the Fomorian invaders. So what she does is she tells the Dagda to send his skilled sorcerers to meet her at the ford of the Unshin River, while she ensures that the Fomor march that way, and then she says, When Indek their king crosses, I will attack him from above, I will drain his blood and peck out his kidneys, so that he is weak and easy to beat when he reaches the battlefield. So much blood will be spilled that this place will be known as the Ford of Destruction. Now, in the surviving medieval version of the Second Battle of Maitura, we don't actually get to see the promise being fulfilled. But this is a promise from the Morrigan, so there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that it is going to be fulfilled. I like to think that I'm quite like the Morrigan <laughs> in that way. <laughs> Although I'm not taking anyone's kidneys, so, you know, there's that. Um, <laughs> the me- Although the day is young. (laughs) (laughs) The medieval version of the saga also has some inconsistencies or plot holes, as we call them today. And I suppose the authors were lucky Twitter wasn't around at the time or that would just be jumped on. One of those plot holes comes out of this promise that the Morgan makes. And in the next episode in the saga... We'll get into that because it involves how Indec meets his fate. No spoilers. <laughs> Before we talk about the Morrigan and her role here, though, we should mention that the beginning of the story follows directly from the end of March of the Fomor. In that episode, we saw Indec's unnamed daughter begin fulfilling her promise to the Dagda, which, like the Morrigan's promise, was made after a sexual encounter. Yeah, in the opening action today, we heard how Index Daughter, as a land spirit, attacks the Fomor with an army of living trees. Um, the actual promise she makes is, I will be a hindrance to the Fomor, I will sing spells against them, I will, alone will take on the ninth part of the host. Just before that, though, when she's trying to persuade the Dagda not to fight in the battle, she outlines some ways that she might hinder him. First, she says, I will be a stone at the mouth of every ford that you will cross. And then she says, I will be a giant oak in every ford, in every pass you will cross. So it's reasonable to assume she'd do something similar to hinder the Fomor. And in March of the Fomor, we see her do that as stones in a ford, while today she attacks them as or with the help of a forest, depending on how you, how you look at it. But onto the Morrigan, and why we think her promise was definitely fulfilled. We first encountered the Morrigan way, way back in episode four, Maids of Mayhem. That story was based on part of the saga, the first battle of Moitura, where she appeared in her threefold form. In the second battle of Moitura, she's really a singular character, who out of the three we met in our version of the first battle of Maitura, she's probably most like the Bave, sometimes just known as the Morrigan. Um, and also, if you go back to our last sound special, you'll hear us talk about the Bave and her relationship to the Banshee in Irish folklore. Now, we say she's most like the Bave because in the Ulster cycle, the hero Cucullin repeatedly encounters a figure who is sometimes called the Bave and sometimes called the Morrigan, who are so similar in their characterization that they probably are the same person, same person even. 
or same god. The stories of the Ulster Cycle, while set later in the timeline of Irish mythology, are almost certainly older than the Maitura sagas, or at least the surviving versions are. Of the two Maitura sagas, the second battle, where the Morrigan appears as a singular entity, is much older than the first battle, which is arguably a medieval creation, something like fan fiction. So it's actually unclear whether she was originally a triple goddess or if at some point different goddesses from different parts of the country worshipped by different tribal groupings who fulfilled similar roles were actually just grouped together. Maka, for example, who is one of the three uh, Marigina in the first battle of Maitura is very much associated with Southern Ulster. But what about that promise? But back in episode four, we talked about a similarity between the Morrigan and a Mesopotamian goddess called Inanna, who is also known as Ishtar. Both of these goddesses are known to proposition heroes and kings from their respective mythologies. And in both cases, acceptance leads to victory and rejection leads to failure and probably death. Yeah, I think we... Definitely talked about how that could be somewhat problematic <laughs> uh, in terms of consent uh, in a previous episode. But anyway, the Morrigan and the Dogdas Trist is an annual affair, which for one thing means that he is very much in her favour. And maybe that this is a contract that must be renewed every year, uh, like the Offences Against the State Act. <laughs> uh, this renewal ensures that the events we described in today's story are inevitable. So... What does that say about her role in pre-Christian belief and practice? It's tempting to assign definite roles to Irish gods because that's what the Romans did and what the Greeks did. And it seems to have been the case for the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians as well. And while it is very likely that our distant ancestors did that too, it is harder to definitively categorise the gods and goddesses of the island of Ireland. The reason for this is, as we have said many, many times on this podcast, that the stories about our gods were only written down centuries after their religion is replaced by Christianity. I think consistency is key. And while gods like Jean Kecht and Gobnu are regularly referred to by their profession, uh, physician and smith respectively, many of the gods aren't as easily categorised. And I think the Morrigan is one of these it's usually the case that the more important a god or goddess is to a broad range of people, the more roles and attributes they will take on that they didn't have before. Um, they started out as one thing with a limited role, but as their popularity grows, so does their range of powers. We talked about this specifically in relation to Lou in previous episodes. From the small amount of archaeological evidence that is currently available, his continental counterpart, Lugus, seems to have been important to shoemakers. But the Lou we know from Irish mythology is skilled in all the arts and had Christianity not come to Ireland when it did, um, could have become the all-powerful god of a native monotheistic religion. Could have. Maybe. Who knows? I'd like if someone wrote the alt alternate history where that <laughs> happened. Maybe someday when we run out of Irish mythology, which we <laughs> never will. But anyway, yeah, the Morrigan is described in the first Battle of Maitura as a triple goddess. And in the surviving text, her three aspects are Morrigan, Bave, and Maka. Um, our adaptation 
of part of that saga back in episode four um, had her in that triple aspect, although we used the names Babe, Maka, and Nauen. And therein lies a problem with classifying her as a triple goddess. Nauen is also referred to as one of the Maragina. So was there actually four of them? To further complicate things, Anand or Anna is another name associated with one of the Maragina. So actually, the question might be now, were there five? <laughs> Just thrown more on. Like, it is possible that there was only one Morrigan and that the babe was just another one of her names. In the Ulster cycle, whose uh, written texts are older than the ones of the mythological cycle, the Morrigan and the babe do appear to be the same figure, while Maka and Yaun, um appear to be separate characters. And we'll go into this in a lot more depth when we cover the Ulster cycle. Anand or Anna doesn't appear in the Ulster cycle and what little evidence there remains of her points to an association with Munster. Yeah, I'm always very tempted to jump to the conclusion, but I've absolutely no evidence for it, that the name Anna is somehow related to Anna and people eventually found, because, I mean, people did come from that part of the world in the Neolithic to Ireland, you know, from, Bab- from you know, the, the Fertile Crescent, as it was called, Babylon and Mesopotamia mm. and all those places. Um, but sure, we'll never know, I suppose, unless we get time machines. Um, <laughs> Fingers crossed. What we might actually be seeing in the various texts is different goddesses who were worshipped in different parts of the country beginning to merge into one in a process of pantheonization that, due to the arrival of Christianity, was never completed. But what of her role in mythology? Well, all we have to go on is the early Christian and medieval textual evidence that could have been influenced by classical Greek or Roman literature. But there are some consistent attributes that stand out that we could point to and could point us in the right direction. The aforementioned tryst with the Dagda in our episode, we keep using the word tryst, it's so tabloidy. You know, um, I, suppose... I thought it was a bit more kind of, you know, classical. Tryst, do yeah. you think? Yeah. I don't know, I suppose they're not, it's, I suppose... It's not the aforementioned bonking uh, with the Dagda. But anyway, uh, their dalliance in the episode, the Dagda's Club uh, in Love and War, um, and as, as well as her propositioning of Cucullin in the Ulster Cycle, shows us that she very much holds the fate of gods and heroes in her hands. Um, and just to reiterate that accepting her proposition leads to victory and a refusal leads to death. When the Dagda meets her in the Second Battle of Moitura, she's standing at the ford of the Unshin River, washing herself. Now, I'm going to take a bit of an educated guess here. The ford in question is a key crossing point to the battlefield at Moitura. It's a boundary, and she controls it. We've talked about the Dagda and his association with boundaries, both physical and supernatural, and it would make sense that the Morrigan would have that too. The ultimate boundary is the one between this world and the other world one that us mortals can, can only cross when we die. I was going to say, surely the ultimate boundary is the one you put between yourself and others. <laughs> In today's story, we see her back at that boundary, fulfilling the promise that she made to, to the Dagda to wipe out a significant number of the Fomorian army. And for those who fell, the, the ford of the Unshin River, afterwards known as the Ford of Destruction, was the boundary between life and death. She also has an association with cattle. 
but not in the same way as the Dagda, who is the guardian of the herd, or Bowen, whose name literally means white cow. The Morrigan steals cattle, usually very specific cattle. Conversely, she also protects very specific cattle. This might, along with her annual tryst, um, I'm going to laugh now every time I say that word, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, point to a fertility role, because the cattle she protects usually have their origins in the other world and are extremely fertile. Uh, we see her steal a white cow from the other world in The Adventures of Nera. She does this to breed the cow with the brown bull of Cooley. This is the same bull that she helps protect from Queen Maeve's cattle raid in Antonbo Cúlnia. In the metrical Dinshankus poem, Odrus, she brings a wild bull to mate with a cow belonging to the lord of the husband of the titular character and then takes the two of them back to her she-mound of Cruachoin. When Odrus goes to take the cow back, the Morgan turns her into a stream of water and she becomes a river known as Odrus. You could kind of say she was the AI woman of, of, the, of the time. So that's one you're probably only going to get if you know something about cattle farming. I don't know anything about Art- cattle farming. Shocker. You know, the AI, the AI man, the artificial insemination man. He comes along well, I he, can imagine, but yeah. I mean, I didn't, uh, I didn't know that was his title. All right. Well, I don't know if it's official, but that's what I've heard farming folk called him. The anyway, AI man. Yeah. Do you know when you said the AI man? You thought artificial intelligence. Yeah, I was like, what? What has this got to do with cattle? For? <laughs> like, what? Well, I suppose I would have heard it like okay. before that was a thing back in school, you know, from lads that lived out the country. Um, back, you know, before the internet and all of that. But anyway, there is actually a lot of clues to her role in that poem. Firstly, the cattle association is there, as is fertility, uh, as she breeds her bull with the cow of Odris's people. And we should also remember that in medieval Ireland and back to the Iron Age, the number of cattle you possessed was a measure of your wealth. So this is another, another indicator of her role in deciding your fate. She holds not only your fate in battle in her hands, but also your fate in terms of the fertility of your herd and by extension, how wealthy you will be. Also in terms of how you might practice your devotion of to the Morrigan, Odris meets her end because she refuses to let the goddess take the cow, and perhaps this shows that the practice was to sacrifice one of your herd to her. Another thing that is really interesting about the Odris poem is that there are links to two other stories we covered on the podcast. She punishes Odris by turning her into water, and we also saw Fumnach do this to Attain in the wooing of Attain. And then it says... The forceful woman melted away towards Stegus in a sleepy stream. Stegus was the well that Bowen disturbed to create the River Boyne, a story that we covered in our second episode. And Stegus was a place in the other world. Possibly it was a general name for the other world or many of the the other other worlds. Uh, But here it does seem to be a place you could go when you die. There are some other lines of interest to us in Odris. Um... The mighty Morrigan, whose pleasure was in mustard hosts, and mustard hosts um, meaning armies kind of gathered for battle. So that's, you know, the war association, but also death because she loved battlefields because... Love is a battlefield. <laughs> Sorry, take a moment for Pat Benatar. Respect. Yeah. Go on. 
because she loved the battlefields because that sent large numbers of dead her way. And then there's this line. Oh my God, actually, sorry, I'm distracted now by Pat Benatar and thinking, what if love is a battlefield is actually about the Morrigan because <laughs> one of the lines in it is, in it is no one can tell us we're wrong. And I was like, wow, that's big Morrigan en- energy. But Maybe um, Pat, <laughs> Pat Benatar, if you're listening, maybe you like send us a, a DM on Instagram to Steffi who does yeah. the Instagram. Yeah, slide in the DMs, Ms. Benatar. <laughs> anyway, also, yeah. So there's also a line, the envious queen, fierce of mood, the cunning raven caller brought off with her the bull, reminding us of her association with corvids. Yes, we should also remember that this association with crows and ravens is linked to her association with death and battle because corvids are carrion eaters and they feast on the human remains of the battlefield. And I have, yeah, I, I do want to say we are actually going to do a specific mythology of crows episode soon. And I'll go into that um, in in more detail. But crows are really interesting. We've we've I'm I'm obsessed with them, and we've talked about them loads on the podcast. And they 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 do really interesting and smart things. Like they'll lead wolves to an animal carcass to get them to like rip the skin so that they can eat and stuff. Very very smart. But anyway, there's loads of really interesting stuff in mythology about them, and we will do a whole episode on that at some stage. Um, sorry, that also that line. The envious queen, fierce of mood. There, there, there's another line in it about her being the Dagda's wife in that same poem. That's where that comes from. But I think most people think that the envious queen, uh, fierce of mood, I, I think people equate that to jealousy about the Dagda's um, philandering. But I, I don't think it is. I think the envious part, I think, t- to me, is of good cattle who are not being sent her way. Just that's my reading of that poem, and I've actually written a kind of modern English version of it, and we'll probably stick that in the Patreon as well at some point when we get to do something with it. That'd be great. Yeah, that's nearly all we have time for. I just want to mention we got um, a book sent to us. It's kind of related to Irish mythology. It's called "Girls Who Slay Monsters," and it is by. Ellen Ryan, illustrated by Shona Shirley MacDonald. And it's a kind of a book for kids. I, I guess, you know, you don't want to be gender essentialist and say it's for girls, even though it's like about girls who slay monsters. It's, 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 it's quite a lovely book. Um, it's, it, the illustrations are really, the, the illustrations really nice. illustrations are fantastic. Um, definitely like some... But sure, look, we all take liberties when we're doing our interpretations of Irish mythology. I was, Let's say like this um Queen Maeve is described as an entrepreneur, but um <laughs> not not I mean technically I guess, you know. But yeah. There's some other there's Yeah, there's some other really I mean it's it's very sort of um girl boss type vibe to it, I think. Yeah. I think that's fair. I mean they there's uh one goddess in it where they is it Faven or someone and they talk about her as um, a fashionista, I think is the <laughs> phrase used. There's some, let me see, Skahuk makes an appearance in it. Uh, like the, the illustrations are really gorgeous. And oh, here's the, the one, yeah. The Maeve, businesswoman and menstruation educator. Which is, you know, another noble profession, I suppose. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, 
Let me see what else is in here that's fave. Harbinger of Doom is very good. Talchu also makes an appearance. Um, Ireland's first farmer. Who else is in here? Uh, Feichwilia, Monster Slayer, Carmoon. Oh yeah, she was the Greek witch who um, turned up in Wexford and tried to do some stuff. And yeah, she's in there. Yeah, there's some funny. There's there are some funny descriptions, but it is it's a nice it's a nice book. Bowen is uh, an explorer. It's very um, sort of feministy body positivity type vibes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's nice for um, like. It's a nice gift book for kids, I think, is probably what I would say. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, if it gets them interested in Irish mythology, all the better. Yeah. Do you know, seeing as we're advertising things, we went to a gig. There was a really good gig in Drotto recently, and there was a band called Hot Girl, who were fantastic. Terrible name for search engine purposes. (laughs) But they are on Instagram, and you should follow them. They're really, really good. We came away from it being like, this band are fantastic. Everyone should go and listen to them. And I'm going to try and see, can I find, is that their Twitter? Or is that their, in- yeah. So their Instagram is H0TGORORL, as in yeah. Riot Girl. Yeah, they are really um, good. And if you're like an early 90s kind of indie alternative aficionado, you will probably like them. They have a lot of, seem to have a lot of influences from the 90s. Yeah, they're, they're, there's absolutely no connection to mythology here other than I suppose maybe if we're going by that book's uh, logic, we could call the Morrigan a hot girl. So <laughs> there's that. Anyway. Um, and also, the, I suppose we probably should mention that you're one that was doing the, I, I can't remember her name, but she did she did do a song about the Book of Invasions. The one that was on at the end of the piano. Farah L. Yeah. She's very good. She's also, she's more well known though. But yeah, she yeah she did do a song about the Book of Invasions, yeah. actually, <laughs> which is great for mythology enthusiasts like us. But yeah, it was a really good event. Shout out to um, to Brenda Komsky, the event planner who put it on. Uh, it was fantastic. Yeah. So that was a kick up the arts festival in Louth. I performed actually at it last year in a poetry show. Uh, I think that might be all we have time for today, Mark. Yeah, I think so. Um... Now, the usual reminder, if you've been enjoying the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron. Um, the Irish Mythology Podcast will always be free to listen to on the usual platforms, but it's not free to make. Your financial support can keep help us keep making it and continue to invest in things like recording equipment, books for research, etc. Um, there's a range of extras there available only to subscribers, including story scripts and story-only audio, enhanced show notes, some bonus episodes. Yeah, go and have a look. It's on patreon.com forward slash Irish Mythology Podcast. And you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook at Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology and online at Irish Mythology Podcast.ie. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or another platform that includes ratings and you really like the show, do us a favor and give us a five star rating because we are strong. No one can tell us we're wrong. <laughs> Searching our hearts for so long, both of us knowing love is a battlefield. Thanks a million. We'll see you next time on Irish Mythology Podcast. You have been listening to 
the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented, and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.